prefer to sit for the reading of the word. And so whatever uh, you're most comfortable with, although we know that this is not about comfort. <laughs> we all have learned that along the way. Uh, so, but whatever you feel led to do, let me say that. Uh, feel, please feel free to do that. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, from this second part of the Beatitudes, I want to preach today from this thought, more markers of the faith more markers of the faith. Um, it's been said that uh, the intro is one of, if not the most important parts of any sermon, the intro, the introduction. It is in the intro uh, that the lens the intro is the lens that brings dozens and even sometimes thousands of wandering minds into focus. So it's advised that one spends some time crafting, thinking about their introduction. The introduction prepares the listeners for the main course. The introduction connects the communicator with the congregation. The introduction is very important. It's interesting that uh, when one has been called to do this, that one learns along the way that when people come into a setting like this or even a larger setting with the idea of hearing word from the Lord or worshiping together, uh, they uh, unawarely sometimes bring all kinds of distractions with them. Their, their life just happens, and because of that, we, even me, <laughs> bring things that will tend to uh, distract our minds. And so, the introduction is important because supposedly what it does, it is it prepares the hearts and the minds and helps to settle these distractions that we have and hone us in and focus us in on the business at hand. So the introduction to any sermon is very important. And as we learned last week, Jesus at this point now along the way has already experienced a few things. You'll remember that he by now has been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. He has been tempted by the enemy after he fasted for 40 days. He's tempted in the wilderness by the enemy. He has now begun his earthly 
ministry. And along the way, he has gained a very large following because he was propagating and pronouncing the gospel. And along the way, while doing that, he was also healing the sick and doing all kinds of miracles. And because of that, a large crowd had began to follow him. While this crowd is following him, he leads those that are following him to a gentle hillside somewhere between Capernaum and Tagba at the north end of the Sea of Galilee to deliver what now is considered the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever was. Jesus chooses then to use these beautiful yet radical verses as an introduction to this epic sermon. The radical Beatitudes are foundational. They're radical, and I'll talk a little bit about, about that, more about that in a minute. But they, they, they're, they're radical, but they're foundational to the radical teachings that will come in the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount. There's a very good reason why Jesus starts where he does. First of all, he's got to settle the crowd. He's got to get the minds focused on what he's preparing to unleash on them. He's preparing to flip their whole theological mindset upside down. And to do it, he sets the stage with these eight Beatitudes. He would later, it's preparation, it's foundational for what he would do later. Later, he would teach them that they were uh, about to do some, uh, be called to what they would consider some radical things. He would teach them later about honesty instead of deception. He would teach them that it would be wise to live in forgiveness instead of vengeance. In purity instead of lust, simplicity instead of indulgence, prayerfulness instead of worry. He would teach them about serving two masters. Teach them about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He would teach them, go on to teach them later in this epic sermon, sermon about not judging others. Would teach them about not casting their pearls before swine. Go on to teach them something as radical as the golden rule. Doesn't that sound radical to you? Do unto others. It doesn't sound very radical to me, but in their day, <laughs> do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Would teach them uh, such radical teachings as uh, the way uh, of destruction, the, the, the way of destruction uh, and the narrow, the broad way of destruction and the narrow way of life. He would teach them uh, uh, among all, so many more things. The Sermon on the Mount would teach them about these things, divorce and almsgiving and uh, salt and light. All these things would be taught in this epic sermon, but he prepares them with this introduction. Jesus' teaching, teachings were, were radical to them because they upended the traditional Jewish thought process of emphasis on the outward. And rather, Jesus' teachings would stress the importance of the inward. 
So to set the stage and to bring their minds into focus, Jesus opens with the Beatitudes. In the Beatitudes, Jesus encouraged the multitudes to focus on being not on being, not just doing, to think more deeply about their true identity and their kingdom relationship with God and relationships with others. It, 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 it was a challenge to a deeper level of thought and a deeper level of understanding about what it is they were preparing to get into. Uh, relationship with God and uh, with others. On the first, most basic level, the Beatitudes can be seen literally as a list of Christian ethics that help one to do God's work. But on the next level, on the second level, the Beatitudes are a series of holy meditations that reveal the very heart of God. And on even another level, the Beatitudes are seen by some as a uh, set of mystical keys that help one to enter the very mind of God, the Beatitudes. They are essentially character traits of those who have entered the kingdom of heaven, or you can also call them markers of the faith. We, we should all be marked by these eight things, because if, if, we, if we've given our lives to him, if we've committed ourselves to, to be followers, disciples of Christ, all of our lives ought to be marked by at least these eight things. They're markers of the faith. Uh, as we shared last week, there are a total of eight of these, depending on depending on how you interpret it, total of eight. Some say nine, uh, but there are a total of eight. Last week, we looked at the first four. Last week, we looked at the first four. Today, we will look at the final four. This, as we arri have arrived at the final four of these Beatitudes, it is a turning point in the Beatitudes. The first four are inner character changes that reflect the believer's relationship with God. But the last four are outward manifestations of those character changes, which reflect the believer's relationships with others. The first four, inner character changes that reflect the believer's relationship with God. The final four outward manifestations of those character changes which reflect the believer's relationship with others. So let's take a look at each one of these final four Beatitudes, and this is what I like to do as we take a look at them. I like to break them down uh, by looking at the meaning of each one of them, the application of each one of them, and the promise that is attached to each one of them. The meaning, the application, and the promise of each of these final four Beatitudes. First one is in verse 7. Uh, verse 7 simply says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Merciful, what is the meaning of 
uh, this word, this word mercy, this word merciful. It simply is this, those who banish all feelings of revenge and ill will out of their hearts. Banish all feelings and thoughts of revenge and ill will out of their hearts. That's not all it is, though. It's also seeking to cultivate an attitude of love and sympathy toward all mankind, especially toward the disfranchised and the dispossessed, especially toward those folks. You know, simply simply put, it means it's having a heart. Right, having that's what mercy is having a heart, having compassion, especially for those that are less fortunate. And less fortunate could mean any number of things, it's not necessarily just uh, economically less fortunate. It could mean less fortunate in any number of ways. It could mean those that are treated poorly, those that are oppressed, those that are dispossessed, those that are disenfranchised. It could mean any of that. Those that are looked down on, those that are frowned on, those that are outcast. Or even those that are, watch this, guilty. Because that hits all of us. It's all, I know your mind went straight to the courtroom, but I'm not talking about that. (laughs) Because all of us are guilty as charged. Uh, It's different, it's different than grace. You've heard the classic definition of the difference between the two. Mercy is different than grace because grace is giving you what you don't deserve. We've all heard that, right? It's, it's, It's unmerited favor. But mercy, we've all been taught, is not giving you, somebody help me finish that, what you do deserve. There's a difference between the two. So mercy is what we're talking about here. And mercy is for the the, the oppressed, the dispossessed, and the guilty. Stories told about a mother who approached Napoleon. Mother approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. And the emperor replied to the young that the young man had actually committed a certain offense twice and justice demanded his death. He had done it twice. He had messed up twice. The mother is seeking mercy for him and Napoleon responds by sharing with her the fact that he was guilty of the offense not only once but twice. And he, because of it, Justice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. Napoleon responds by saying, your son does not deserve mercy. Doesn't deserve mercy. Napoleon replies, sir. That's what he's replied. Then the woman says to Napoleon, sir. It would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well, then Napoleon said, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. Because it does not matter how guilty you are. Mercy says, I'll give you another chance. 
and mercy and merciful is how we've been asked to live our lives. The very idea of mercy, the very idea of mercy was radical to the Roman world. Mercy was despised by Romans. John MacArthur notes about this. John says, uh, he, he responds and he notes about this, that a popular Roman philosopher called mercy the disease of the soul. It was the supreme sign, according to this philosopher, of weakness. Mercy was a sign that you did not have what it takes to be a real man, and especially a real Roman. The Romans glorified manly courage, strict justice, firm discipline, and above all, absolute power. They looked down on mercy. Because mercy to them was weakness, and weakness was despised above all human limitations. But the Bible, y'all do believe what the Bible says. The Bible teaches in many places that the God we serve is a merciful God. In many places, all throughout Scripture, you'll find evidence of the fact that God is a merciful God. Psalm 103 verse 8 says this, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Titus 3.5, Paul writes this, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God is a merciful God. Though at times, despised are considered weak by the world. Mercy is a supreme virtue as it is a character trait of both God and his people. It's the way we ought to be. We ought to, because, so, so let me just break it down like this. So since we received it, we ought to be willing to extend it. And if you don't think you received it, you ought to rewind the tape and look back over your life. And then you'll realize, I'm not talking about where you are now, because, you know, we get to a place where we think we done made it. And we think we forget about where we we came from. You know, we forget about through, through, through many dangers, toils, and snares. I've already come. We forget about that. So... It's a supreme virtue. It's a, it, it should be a character trait of all of us because it is a character trait of God. But what about application? Application of this. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. What's the application for us? Well, I'll tell you that is, uh, that is two things. It's, it's about helping and it's about forgiving. So, so wh- when I say application, what I mean? I mean, how do you apply it today to your life? Here it is. Be willing to help somebody. Be willing to forgive somebody. 
Oh, I've got scripture for it. I'm not making it up. Be willing to help somebody. James 1.27 says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, there's a lot involved in that visiting orphans and widows. That simply means be compassionate for folks that need compassion. It's not relegated to only orphans and widows. It simply means be like the good Samaritan who was on the road, on his way, and sees somebody who needs help. Extend help. I remember, I remember quite vividly, Jeff, our trip to Greece. A couple years ago, we had the privilege and honor to go to Athens, Greece, and spend a week witnessing the work that the Christians were doing there. And, and, and what we went to witness was the work that they were doing with refugees, Muslim refugees, who had left Iran and Afghanistan and traveled to Athens and Turkey and other places to get some relief. And what struck me is that as we heard them speak and as we listened to those who had been ministering to them, uh, what struck me is the stories that were told about how persecuted they felt uh, from the Muslims on their journey, how, how difficult of a journey they had because of how the Muslims treated them. But then to hear how that when they arrived in Greece and some of these other places, that the Christians embraced them. That the Christians loved them. That the Christians were willing to help them. What was amazing to me as I sit there in that conference hall in Athens, Greece, watching these Muslim families gather around tables to have dinner, what, what struck me and amazed me was to hear how the leaders that were standing on the stage, many of them were prior Muslims who had made the journey themselves. But because of the help they got, not just helping hands, but helping hearts, that would help them and extend mercy to them, they had themselves converted to Christianity. It's important that we are willing to help. There's also help uh, that we should extend to those who are struggling with sin, not just those who are seeking uh, an answer, but those also who are struggling with sin because Paul writes this in Galatians 6, 1, through 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We've got to be willing to help people. That's what mercy looks like. But mercy doesn't stop there. It also looks like this. The application for us is also, number one, help, but also forgive. Be willing to forgive. Here's what Paul writes in Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Don't forget. <laughs> That's what mercy looks like. Mercy looks like 
being willing to help, being willing to forgive. But then to this, as with all of the other Beatitudes, there's a promise attached. Here's what it says. Promise says, you shall receive mercy. What does it mean? It simply means this. Uh, it, it really could say this. For they have received mercy because, again, these are, these are markers uh, of the faith and simply means that those of us that, can, that fit this means that we've already, uh, we've already received this mercy. So what is this promise? It is assurance. It is awareness, right? Assurance. The other promise is tied to this. So we don't like to look at it this way. We don't like to look at it as transactional. But the simple law of the universe says this, you'll reap what you sow. It's about, <laughs> about reaping and sowing. Paul says this in Galatians 6, do not, be, do not be deceived. God is not marked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Promise is you'll reap what you sow. Give in Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will he put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The promise is that you, number one, have already received mercy. That's done. Done deal. You've already gotten it. You're not waiting to get it. You're not, do, you're not doing what you're doing to get it. You've already gotten it. But here it is. Since you've gotten it, you ought to extend it. And if you extend it, you'll get more of it. <laughs> then he goes on, uh, he goes on to, to, to the next beatitude. Verse 8. Verse 8 says this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What's the meaning of this pure in heart idea? Meaning is this, uh, that, that, that that person has a right spirit, that that person has integrity, that that person has singleness of purpose, the absence of low aims. Take the low aims out of the equation. Pure in heart. Psalm 24, 1 through 4 says this, The earth is the Lord's, the fullness of the world, and they that dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Who, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So that last sentence gives you a pretty good idea of what it means to have a pure heart. Here it is. Let me read it again. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. What's the application? The application is this. Uh, it's a process that began at salvation. This is how we apply this idea of a pure heart to our lives right now. Understand this. It's a process, number one. You don't just get a pure heart. It's a process. Number one, you don't get it by yourself anyway. It's something you'll never achieve alone. But it is a process uh, that began at the moment of salvation. At the moment of salvation, the Lord began to purify your heart. I know it's true because Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 35, 36, 25 and 26, he says this, I will sprinkle, sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's a process that started. So you need to know that uh, we, the Lord is working on us right now. 
that we might continuously build this purity of heart in us. But the process for those of us that have surrendered to Christ, the process started at that moment. It started. So we know that that describes us. What's the promise attached to this beatitude? Here it is. says that uh, the pure in heart shall see God. In other words, Jesus says this, that those of us that are believers are guaranteed to see God. Guaranteed to see him. You're guaranteed to see him now. You're not going to see him in his fullness right now. But watch this. You notice evidences of him in everything right now. I don't know about you, but I can be driving down the street and a bird can fly uh, by my car and I can say, Lord is good. I can be uh, on vacation sitting on the beach looking up at the sunset with my toes in the sand and I can just think the Lord is good. The Lord made all of this. I can be climbing a mountain somewhere. I can be in Athens, Greece. I can be in Tokyo, Japan. I can be in Freetown, Sierra Leone and I can look at the wonders of God and I see him in it right now. I see him right now. I would not be able to see him had it not been for this process that has already started in me. But not only can I see him now, but I will see him in his fullness then. I'll see him then in a way that I can't see him now. I know I'm right about it because Revelation 22.4 says... We will see his face. We'll see him. Then he moves on then to the next beatitude. He says in verse 9, verse 9 he says this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This trait being on the list, peacemaker, shows the importance Christ placed on the ideals of peace, for he is preeminently the prince of peace. So he adds this. This is, this is included in the list because he is the prince of peace. You remember what Isaiah 9, 6 says, don't you? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called, y'all help me, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of shalom, prince of peace. You do know what peace is, don't you? Peace is not necessarily the absence of trouble. Peace is the ability to be able to make it through the trouble while the trouble is happening. That's what peace is. I know I'm right about it because Jesus Christ was on a ship with his disciples and some unpeace came around. I know I made that word up. Y'all forgive me, you teachers, English teachers. Unpeace is a new word. Put it in the lexicon, in the dictionary. Unpeace came up by way of a storm. But the prince of peace was on board. And all he did was, <laughs> who helped me preach it? All he did was say, peace, be still. But the, but, the, but the disturbance and the trouble still came. They couldn't avoid that. Uh, so so what, 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 what's meant? What's the meaning of this? The only begotten son of God was the quintessential peacemaker. He was the prince of peace. Uh, he is the prince of peace, placing his own life in jeopardy to reconcile us to God. 
His hands were stretched out dangerously wide on the cross. His shoulders ached as he held God's hand in one and man's hand in the other and brought them together in his own body on the cross. This trait is here on this list because the qualities described in the first seven Beatitudes are the essential prerequisites of the peacemaker. In order to be a peacemaker, one must be poor in spirit. One must be willing to mourn. One must be meek. One must long for righteousness. One must be merciful. One must be pure in heart in order to be a peacemaker. What is exactly the meaning? It's given to working for promoting the kingdom of God. That's what being a peacemaker looks like. Reconciling adversaries, quenching hatred, uniting those who are divided, promoting true understanding and spiritual love. That's what it means to be a a peacemaker. What's the application? What should we do with this? What do we leave here and do today? Here's what I would suggest. Sincerely seek reconciliation and righteousness. Sincerely seek reconciliation and righteousness. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, one of my favorite passages in scripture. He says this, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what it looks like. Uh, Peacemaker. Paul says this in Romans 12, 18. Uh, Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That should be our goal, to live peaceably with all. With all again, peace does not mean the absence of trouble. Peace means being able to navigate through it in a righteous way. Amen, somebody. I said something to myself right there. I had to. So what's the promise attached to it? We, we, we're almost there. What's the promise attached to it? It says this, that, that, that those people shall be called the sons of God. Again, this is not really talking about what will happen if you are a peacemaker. This is talking about what has happened because you are a peacemaker. It's assurance again. Assurance happens here because in this, we know that if we are believers, if we're walking with Jesus, then we should have this spirit of being a peacemaker on the inside. And if that is the case or since that is the case, then we are sons and daughters of the Most High God. It's assurance. It ought to give you confidence. It should build and bolster and strengthen your resolve and your faith is what should happen. Lastly, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you, persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Persecuted. This is the final marker of faith 
of the faith in the Beatitudes. What's the meaning? The Greek word is dioko, and it simply means to put to flight, to pursue. It means harassment, ostracism, scorn for the sake of Christ. If you have to endure, not, now let me rephrase that, not if you have to endure, but because you have to endure all of that. Now, let me say this as it relates to persecution. We don't, we were having this discussion the other day, we don't necessarily face the kind of persecution that they're facing in Iran. We're not necessarily facing the kind of persecution that they're facing in China. We're not necessarily facing the kind of persecution that Paul's, uh, that Jesus' disciples would face later in their lives in this day, but we do face persecution. Different level, but have you ever had somebody talk about you because you're a Christian? Have you ever had somebody to, 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 to treat you different? Because Have you ever been denied something? Have, there's all kinds of different varying forms of persecution. And Jesus says, you'll be persecuted. Watch this. The application is this. There are two words. Are, verse 10, blessed are those who are, not, not might be, but those who are persecuted. And then verse 11, blessed are you when, not if. Simply means this, it's sure to come. That's the application. That's what I want to leave you, here, leave you with today as you go. As you leave here, I want you to know you will be persecuted. I know that's not a happy message. I know that's not a feel-good thing to leave here and go home with, but you need to know the reality is that you will face some form of persecution. It might not be like you see on TV. It might not be like you read in your Bible, but you will face some form of persecution. Paul writes to Timothy these words in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus might be persecuted. Is that what it says? You will be. Jesus says this in John 16, 33. In this world, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. It will happen. Uh, I like Tertullian, uh, second century Christian leader. Tertullian says this. Uh, he was approached by a man who said, I have come to Christ, but I don't know what to do. I have a job that I don't think is consistent with what Scripture teaches what can I do? I must live. Tertullian replied, must you? For Tertullian, there was only one option. Obey and honor Christ. For him, survival was secondary. I wish I had time. I'm going to move on by that. It has to be number one. You need to know that you will face persecution. What's the promise? The promise is heaven. It, the promise is heaven, right? The promise is this. Uh, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The reward is great in heaven. Now, that's not just pie in the sky. That's not just by and by. Heaven is right now. You're living in it right now. You're not realizing the full reality of it. You have not gotten there yet. But this is part of eternal life right now. It started the very day that you gave Jesus your heart. From that moment on, you've been in heaven on earth. You've been part of the kingdom of heaven. 
And the promise is that, that you've received it and that you're working your way. Not working your way. That's not a good word. Don't you leave here and tell nobody I said that. Strike that from the video. I might get fired. (laughs) You're making your way. How about that? (laughs) You're making your way to the ultimate heavenly experience. So that's the promise. Now I need to leave you. Let me leave you with this conclusion. Conclusion is in verse 12. And since we've kind of been down, talking about we will be persecuted, I see some uplifting in verse 12 because verse 12 says this, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great. And the question I hear you asking is this one. How can I rejoice and be glad in the face and in the midst of persecution, heartache, difficulty, tribulation, trial? How do I do it? I got three things and I'm leaving you. Number one, memory. Number two, meditation. Number three, motivation. Memory, what's that all about? All you got to do, if you're feeling down, you feel like you can't make it, just remember some stuff. (laughs) Remember the last time you felt like that. Remember the first time you felt like that. Remember how impossible things felt before. I don't know when your before was. It could have been yesterday. It could have been 20 years ago. But whenever it was, it could have been five minutes ago. Remember how the Lord delivered you then. Oh, I just need two or three people to pray with me right here. Uh, Remember how good God has been to you already. And then when you remember, you ought to meditate. Meditate on what? Meditate on the word of God. And the word of God will help you to endure all kinds of things. Meditate on his word. Like Psalm 34, 19 that says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers us out of them all. Meditate on scripture like Psalm 37, 25, where David says, I have been young and I'm now old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging for bread. Meditate on scripture like 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 10, where Paul writes, we are troubled on every side yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body, doing the, in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Meditate on scripture. It'll help. Like 2 Corinthians 4.17. It says this, for our light, affliction, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Memory, meditation, motivation. What's the motivation? The motivation is the promises of God should motivate you. Even when times are tough. The promises, what are his promises? They're right here in the Beatitudes. Be comforted. You'll be comforted. You'll inherit the earth. You'll be satisfied. You'll receive mercy. You'll see God. 
You'll be called the sons and daughters of God, and yours is the kingdom of heaven. Be motivated by that. Lastly, and I promise this, the absolute last thing I'm going to say to you before I give you the benediction. I promise. Promise. Y'all hold me to it. <laughs> First Corinthians 2, 9. But as it is written, I, help me out, has not seen, ear has not heard. Neither has it entered into this ought to motivate you. Neither has it entered into the hearts of men those things that God has prepared for those who love him, but he has revealed them motivation to us by our spirit that dwells on the inside of us. We ought to be motivated by his promises. Hold on to his unchanging hand. These are the marks of the faith that identify us as believers. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. Thank you for your word that is a lamp and a light. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Listen, I want to extend invitation to anyone who may be here that does not yet no, this, these marks don't identify you yet. You're wondering, what in the world is this dude talking about? There's a chance right now to solve it, to fix it, right now today. If you're here today and you don't know him, we invite you to get to know him. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to lead you into relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because once you put your hand in his hand, Robbie, I like that. Just do that because you know what I'm getting ready to say. Your life will never be the same. And if that is you, don't leave this building today until we've had a chance to pray with you. That's what we want to do. Then if you've been visiting with us or if it's your first time visiting and you'd like to unite with us here at Bethel Hope, great things happening. We're excited about the future. And we'd love to have you be a part of that with us. Would you let us know and we'll lead you into what needs to happen for you to be a member here at Bethel Hope. Let us know. Lastly, I want to um, acknowledge any uh, first-time visitors that we might have. Anyone visiting with us for the first time? Amen. Would you stand? Would you stand? We just want to recognize you. Would you let us know your name and if Someone invited you. If not, that's fine as well. Wonderful, wonderful. Welcome. Yes, sir. Sammy Gordon. Bless you, sir. Brother Kimmy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You said that's your friend? Well, y'all, yeah, y'all look like y'all could be related somehow. <laughs> that's not the first time y'all heard that, is it? All right. Well, thank y'all. Listen, thank you so much for worshiping with us today. Uh, I apologize that we, went, we had to do the building deal and all that, so I probably were a little bit long today. Forgive us for that. But we thank you so much for being with us, and we strongly encourage you and invite you that whenever the Lord so leads you that you come back and worship with us again. We've got a gift for each of you. If you hadn't received it yet, we're going to give you a gift, and we're going to have a card for you to fill out just so that we can stay in touch with you and add you to our prayer list so that we can be praying with you and for you. Amen.
With that, we're going to prepare. If there's nothing else, listen to all of you who we prayed for earlier, all of the, the, the people who will be working in youth camps uh, throughout the summer. Remember, we are praying with you, for you, uh, that the Lord would use you in a mighty way, in a mighty way, in a mighty way. In a mighty, the children are our future, and they're so important. It's so important to instill the values of Christ right now. So we're praying the Lord will use you in a mighty way to do that. And whatever your, uh, whatever your ministry field is, whatever the Lord has given you to do, we're praying for God's blessings upon you and his favor to go out ahead of you. With that, would you join me as I offer this word of benediction? Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory, majesty, dominion, and power now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.